Okay, so this will be a supplement on glossolalia and xenoglossia in the restored church. Uh, and the gift of tongues is important in the restored church. Of course, I mean, right there in our Articles of Faith, so we really have a hard time ignoring it, right? Though we might like to. Um, but there's a serious disconnect between the way other Christians talk about this gift and the way we do. And and so let's, uh, let's talk again about these terms, glossolalia and xenoglossia. Xenoglossia, like xenophobia is fear of foreigners. Xenoglossia is foreign, foreign tongue. It's the ability to speak or be heard in a tongue not known to the speaker, but which really is in a, a legitimate foreign language. Okay? Glossolalia is speaking in a language that's known to no one but God. Okay? Now, xenoglossia is the way that modern Latter-day Saints think about the gift of, the tongue, of tongues. Right? The book of Acts describes how on the day of Pentecost, Christian disciples preached to the devout Jews that had come you know, to Jerusalem from every country in the Roman Empire to celebrate in Jerusalem. Each of those Jews heard the Christian message in their own native language from their homeland. Okay? And this is our Latter-day Saint focus, right? It's for preaching the gospel. Well, Joseph Smith had this gift. On one occasion, when he spoke to a Native American tribe, the government interpreter that he had hired was twisting his words to dispose the, the, uh, the Native Americans against him. And he understood this by the Spirit and told the man to be silent. And then he addressed the tribesmen himself, and they understood in their own language. In, uh, in, in a variety of miraculous ways, the Spirit of God helps bridge the barrier of language in preaching the gospel. Have, if you heard of Carl Mazur, have you? The co-founder of... Uh, of BYU, uh, the Mazer Building. <laughs> uh, it's the iconic building at, uh, at BYU. Um, so, he, so he was uh, contacted by a non-German-speaking representative of the church, uh, and, um, and they, they had a conversation uh, in which, apparently, they each spoke in their own language and, uh, and understood each other. Uh, in the 1921 Conference of Maori Saints that understood President McKay without an interpreter is, uh, is another well-known instance. Less well-known is this interesting variation. Um, have you ever heard of Elder Yoshihiko Kikuchi's famous, influential, popular um, 70 um, when I was younger? When he was a young missionary in his native Japan, Elder at that time, Elder Gordon Hinckley, visited the mission. This is what he said. This is what uh, Elder Kikuchi said. At that time, I could say good morning, hello, how are you, and thank you. But that was, all I could, that was about all I could say in English. I wanted desperately to understand what was going on in the meeting. I could tell that it was an inspiring meeting. I could feel the spirit, but I couldn't comprehend the words. Each of the other missionaries took turns bearing their testimony, Finally, Elder Hinckley, oh, this, this is not in quotes, this is, um, oh, I think this is an article in LDS Living, I think it was reprinted, but I, I read it originally somewhere else. Um, each of the other missionaries took turns bearing their testimony. Finally, Elder Hinckley called on Elder Kikuchi to do the same. Now, now we go again to Elder Kikuchi's quote. I didn't know what he had said. My companion nudged me and told me what Elder Hinckley had said. I stood there and felt so good but all the time I was kind of gnashing my teeth and saying to myself, I want to understand and comprehend English because I want to help the church grow in the Orient. 
I started speaking in Japanese for one or two sentences. Then a strange feeling came to my mind. I just started speaking in English. Everybody said later that it was a be- that it was beautiful English. But I couldn't understand what I had said. I believe I did bear a good testimony. And that's the end of the quote. So, um, and all of this accords very nicely with the with our focus that, that uh, the gift of tongues is for the preaching of the gospel. But of course, there's also this glossolalia. And, um, and it's, it's also a prominent part of the history of the restored church, though it's essentially unknown in our day. And let's talk about why. So uh, Paul says in, in that chapter we read earlier today in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, a kind of speaking in tongues where the language is spoken uh, you know, to God and understood only by God, completely unknown to everyone else. Turns out this was a very common practice in early, early history of the uh, Latter-day Saint Church. But it, it totally disappeared by 1930. Um, now this is according to Truman Manson. When, uh, when Brigham Young first met Joseph Smith at a meeting in Kirtland, Brigham was called upon to pray. And remember, this is their first meeting. I just think this is so delightful. Uh, in this prayer, Brigham spoke in an unknown tongue. The brethren waited with bated breath to see if the prophet would give him the smackdown for this strange speech. <laughs> but I'm sure after a you know, pregnant pause, Joseph told them that what Brigham had said was from God and then proceeded to speak in tongues himself, of course. On another occasion, when Joseph was subpoenaed and was about to leave to attend the, the trial, um, he, he, I'm assuming in chains of some kind, but he was met at the door by a sister named Sarah Cleveland. She spoke to him in an unknown tongue. The prophet listened intently, and when she was through, said, You need not fear for me. As Sister Cleveland says, I shall have my trial and be acquitted. And he was. <laughs> On yet another occasion, Joseph gave a blessing in tongues to Orson Pratt. Now that's confidence, a blessing in tongues. For the early saints, their ability to speak in tongues um, was a sign, they felt like, that distinguished them from the rest of Christianity. It was, it was evidence of the restoration, proof that the Holy Ghost was with them in a unique, a special way. And now, most people will know about the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, um, but maybe not the quite the intensity of it. Um, we know that there was a great outpouring of the Spirit at that time, visions of angels, even by non-members, the sound of a rushing mighty wind like at Pentecost, and so forth. What, what probably isn't less well known is that speaking in tongues was a big part of this. Uh, and in fact, people sang in tongues, and on one occasion... A man and woman, not evidently husband and wife, not related to each other, spontaneously arose in a meeting and began singing a song in the self-same words, right? And in perfect harmony, but these were not words that would have been uh, known to anyone else but God, presumably. Now, I don't know if you feel like I do, uh, but this makes me nervous, <laughs> right? <laughs> You know, it makes me think, wait, are we back to the Corinthian saints? Are people going to be uh, standing up and cursing people in the name of Jesus in, in, in short order? Um, so it, it is interesting. And and and, um, and we'll see that Joseph was concerned about this. He's concerned about how quickly this kind of thing could, could devolve. 
right? They they understood that um, that there was there was reason to be cautious, right? The Prophet Joseph directed that because Satan could easily imitate this gift, the saints were to use caution, and that there should be an interpreter present to confirm the validity of the pronouncement. The, the implication being, if there's no interpreter there. Yeah, that may, that may not really have been the gift of tongues there, or at least not the tongues of the Spirit, right? In 1833, um, so this is early, early, right? Joseph received a letter from a sister Whitney that contained a prophecy received by interpretation of tongues. In response to this specific, you know, quote-unquote revelation, Joseph said, Many who pretend to have the gift of interpretation are liable to be mistaken, and do not give the true interpretation of what's spoken. The next year, Joseph banned the use of the gift of tongues in church trials, saying that the church must rely only on actual testimony. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, uh, to the Relief Society, he said, you may speak in tongues for your own comfort, but I lay this down for a rule that if anything is taught by the gift of tongues, it is not to be received for doctrine. Um, we don't often think of, of the gifts of God being a potential pitfall. Um, but after reaffirming the need for the gift of tongues and preaching the gospel, that's our current focus, Joseph made this interesting statement. The gifts of God are all useful in their place, but when they are applied to that which God does not intend, they prove an injury, a snare, and a curse instead of a blessing. Now, I ask you, if someone has a gift of prophecy, can that be misused? I take that to be so. Um, and I really don't, I'm really not convinced that spiritual gifts are any different than physical gifts, mental gifts, social gifts. Um, some people have a gift of empathy. Can that be misused and be damning and destructive? You better believe it, and I think all of you know it. I've seen it. Uh, the, the gift of physical strength, can that be a curse when misapplied? <laughs> Ta-da! Right? The gift of intellectual strength, a curse? You know it. Uh, as atom bombs and, uh, and economic arrangements and political powers amply, amply demonstrate. Spiritual gifts. It's, it's funny to think of that. We, don't we normally think that if you have a spiritual gift, it turned on and off by God? It sounds like that's not true. It sounds like that's not the case. God gave me this strength. God gave me this intellect. He doesn't turn it on and off when he wants me to use it and when he want, doesn't. He expects me to exercise judgment when to use it. This is the interesting thought, I think. Yeah, we'll see if that means anything to you. Um, as a way of helping to restrain the incorrect exercise of this gift, the prophet taught that the saints could speak in tongues during meetings only with the permission of the presiding authority. The devil, he, this is a quote, the devil can tempt all classes. He can speak in English or Dutch. Let no one speak in tongues unless he interpret, except by the consent of the one who is placed to preside. Then he may discern or interpret or another may. Right, so, um, right from the get-go. I mean, he's speaking in tongues in 32, and he's putting 
restrictions on it and counsel on it that, that, that should dampen it uh, you know, right from the start. Okay. But ultimately, of course, this, this practice fades and disappears. When was the last time you heard someone speak in tongues in a Latter-day Saint meeting? Well, can't think that I ever had. By 1900, glossolalia was falling way out of favor. An instance from Idaho Falls in 1901, I think, is illustrative of this. One of the sisters there routinely arose and spoke or sang in tongues in fast and testimony meetings. I mean, you think that fast and testimony meetings can get out of hand and get weird now. <laughs> be, be there in Idaho Falls in 1901. This sister gets up and speaks and sings in tongues. And... Um, and many members felt uncomfortable with that, with the spirit that accompanied her, including the bishop. And and what was uh, adding more to the fun, whenever this sister would, would do this, speak or sing in tongues, another specific sister in the congregation would go into visible spasms, like seizures, right? When the bishop, wanted, uh, when the bishop warned the congregation to be on their guard against the possibility of sinister influence, a relative, I think it was the nephew of this first woman, arose in the meeting and, you guessed it, substitute in First Corinthians, uh, right, uh, and loudly cursed the bishop in the name of the Lord. I love it. It's so perfect. I mean, the whole thing just comes full circle, right? When he says, well, now, brothers and sisters, we got to be aware that, you know, the devil can, can, um, uh, can imitate this gift. And then this guy stands up and curses the bishop in the name of the Lord. I mean, this is so perfect. <laughs> As a result of these sorts of events, bishops were given explicit authority to prohibit any person from speaking in tongues at their discretion. Meanwhile, the top the top leadership uh, starts to de-emphasize uh, glossolalia, emphasize xenoglossia as the legitimate expression of the gift of tongues. Now, there were saints that objected, of course, uh, worrying that the, the loss of this gift, well, does this mean we're losing our status as Christ's true church? And does this leave us no better than the, than the Methodists and Catholics, you know, and the Baptists? Some even complained. <laughs> Can you hear this happening today? Some even complained that if the gifts of the Spirit were to be outlawed, then the very ordinances of the gospel themselves might be abandoned as well, right? So, I mean, this was a really uncomfortable transition for a lot of people. Um, and the change was, you know, ironic in my view. Um, President Heber Grant worked probably the hardest to downplay this. And it really, really under his watch, it goes away. And yet he himself was a testament to this, to the potent uh, nature of this gift, right? When he was 15 years old, Eliza Snow prophesied in tongues and Zainadi the Huntington Young interpreted to the effect that one day he would be one of the leading men in the church. So, well, but but the but the the final blow, the death blow, to uh, to speaking in tongues, at least to the glossolalia part of it, in the church, was a new religious movement that was taking root in America just at this time, exactly at this time. And 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 this is Pentecostalism, right? In fact, the image that we have today of people speaking in tongues is Pentecostal, right? Words that are repetitive. Same word, da, 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 same thing. Ecstatic, gesticulations and contortions and swooning and this kind of stuff, right? Uh, during the administration of Joseph F. Smith, and especially Heber Grant, 
members and leaders became alarmed that these spectacular things, um, you know, were would would defame the church essentially. So they just they tried to distance themselves from this from this practice, um, and and they characterized what was going on in this in the Pentecostal movement, uh, you know, uh, in no uncertain terms as manifestations of the power of the devil, right? And I think that's probably right. <laughs> I think that's probably, I mean, look, Pentecostals uh, certainly obviously have known, done tons of Pentecostals over the years. Some are kooky. Most are just great, you know. And I'm not saying anything about them. But I think it's, it's a counterfeit gift, uh, mostly. Right. Um, so it's this outlandish stuff, this outlandish imitation of glossolalia. Um, and so the feeling was it's no longer an effective or necessary sign of the church's divine status. Let's focus on xenoglossia for preaching the gospel. And so by, the, by 1930, that it completely disappeared, and that's where we stand today with it. Okay, next appendix is baptism for the dead. <laughs> 